Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, October 23rd, 2016. The share ID for Friday, October 21st, is 9194. That's 9194. This morning, A Vision for You presents, and we have ceased fighting. What does it mean to be a recovered compulsive overeater? All of us have come to Overeaters Anonymous as a result of the suffering, frustration, and despair we experienced in our disease of compulsive overeating. We come to OA looking for a solution which will free us from the bondage of our affliction. The purpose of the big book is to change your life through a 12-step process of personal transformation leading to a spiritual awakening and freedom from the bondage of addiction. Those of us who have walked this path can assure you of its effectiveness. We once suffered in hopelessness and despair. We are now recovered from a seemingly hopeless condition of mind and body. Now we are new people with a new purpose. The problem has been solved. It's been removed We are no longer fighting. We have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. Joining us this morning is John A., a recovered compulsive overeater from Maryland. John is dedicated to the 12-step way of life, and he's here with us this morning to carry the message of recovery. And welcome to you, John. Good morning. Good morning to you. My name is John A., and I am a recovered compulsive eater. Uh, and I am a little bit nervous here this morning because in addition to this being my first time to speak on the special edition, and thank you, Leah, for inviting me to to do this. This is my actual first time ever on a phone meeting. So <laughs> quite an introduction, I think. And my topic comes from two references in the big book. On page 84, which is at the beginning of the 10th step, it says, and we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time sanity will have returned. I remember sitting in a meeting many, many years ago where the topic was step two and their people were going around in the circle talking about how They didn't think they were insane, and I just started cackling uncontrollably because there was no question in my mind that I was insane. So to have a clear definition from a book that has been so instrumental to my recovery of what sanity is, I will take this. We have ceased finding anything or anyone. There's a second reference, though, at the end of working with others, which says, after all, our problems were of our own making Bottles were only a symptom. Besides, we have stopped fighting anybody or anything. We have to. To give you a little bit of a background on why I uh, chose this topic, I could probably best say that I've been fighting as long as I can remember. I grew up in a home with a very interesting view of fighting. I was the only boy in a family of three sisters. And I remember being told 
as a switch was being used on me or a belt, that boys are not allowed to hit girls. Now, my experience for the next 30 to 40 years was that girls could do anything they liked physically, mentally, or emotionally to torture boys, but that uh, brothers, boyfriends, or husbands uh, who physically retaliated were subject to swift and severe punishment. So I learned to fight with words. I learned to fight with my thoughts. I learned to also live inside, quietly assessing the world around me before I ever attempted to share with anyone. As unacceptable as physical fighting was in my family of origin, argument was very much prized there. My father was a debater, and he loved a good discussion. I learned very on that any subject could be discussed at the family table, but one had to come prepared to have his arguments challenged and often berated. I became very good at formulating an argument, very good at arguing, and often relentlessly determined to win, usually at any cost. I think I was born a compulsive eater. You know, I don't want to get into an argument about nature versus nurture, and not an argument anyway. You know, the truth is, I've been obsessed with food every waking moment as far back as I can recall. My actual earliest memory is at the age of three, my mother made a special place for me in the cabinet next to the refrigerator for my cereal and my cereal bowl and put a container of milk on the bottom shelf so that I could get up and feed myself before and not get her out of bed at the crack of dawn. This defined love to me. My mother loved me enough to make sure that I had food before she got out of bed in the morning. Yeah, I woke up early and I woke up hungry for as long as I could remember. At the age of 60, I still wake up early and I still wake up hungry. I take my first sponsor call at 5 o'clock in the morning on weekdays. I'm usually already wide awake and planning my food for the day. Well, where do we go from here? In grade school, I had a variety of different uh, abusive nicknames, Tony the Baloney, the Fatso, and Basketball Belly. You know, that's not why I have a problem. You know, I grew up in a world where um, one could collect empty soda bottles, or we called them pop bottles in Kentucky, and trade them in for cash. And I used that cash to buy my, my favorite chewable substances, which I would stick in my mouth to uh, ease the pain far back as I can remember. I'd gather bottles on my way home from school. I'd go to the grocery store. I'd trade them in, and I'd get my pack of gum and my pack of candy, and I'd start chewing. I have the teeth that don't have root canals have uh, fillings in them in the back of my mouth. Yeah, I grew up in a family where meals were a competition to see who could finish their plate first. I always won. I uh, We moved from the small town I grew up in, Kentucky, to uh, Virginia when I was in junior high school, and we moved again when I was in uh, another year later, and I learned about bullying. I learned what it was like to be bullied. I was a fat kid with a hillbilly accent, and I very early on learned that it was not acceptable to talk the way I talked. So, as you'll notice, I don't have much of a hillbilly accent today. I learn to get rid of it. There was one thing I definitely did not want to be. I did not want to be a fat, ignorant hillbilly. You know, I developed a chameleon nature. I learned to emulate the accents of other people when I was talking to them. And all the while, I got larger and larger. Now, in in the early 70s, 
my mother and I joined a, a weight loss organization, and I threw myself into that organization with a vengeance. I became a lifetime member of a pay-in-way program when I was 15 years old. Um, I maintained that weight loss for until I was in college. Yeah. It was a rigid and structured diet, and it was not the solution to my problem. For all of my father's mental competitiveness, there was a real disdain for athletic achievement in my house. I grew up being taught that uh, athletes were all jerks and that people who were obsessed with how their body looked had a problem. And I, uh, I learned to dislike athletes. I learned to dislike exercise. I thought exercise was ridiculous. Um, when I was... In my one of my last gym classes in junior high school, actually broke my right ankle in a basketball game, which we'll get around to later. Um, church and religion were a very large part of my upbringing. My parents had been raised in a backwards hillbilly, hillbilly church, and they had both made the decision to join what they considered the more sophisticated Southern Baptist church when they were when they had kids. And my father would wax eloquent about theological concepts, and my mother would prattle on about what was wrong with every other church in the world. So I grew up in this environment of critically analyzing religions. In the midst of all that, I had a grandmother who filled my head, who listened to radio preachers, every time she could find them on the radios and every penny she could afford to them and filled my head with fear, shame, and disgust over sins I could not even define. She told me constantly that she prayed every day for me to become the next Billy Graham, that she knew I was predestined to receive a call and that all the demons of hell were working, lurking around the corners waiting to snatch my soul and prevent me from fulfilling God's destiny for me. We attended church every Sunday morning, evening, Wednesdays. We were there all the time. I memorized more Bible verses by the time I was 12 years old than most people have actually ever read. As a teenager, I began exploring other denominations and studying comparative religion. Long story short, I have at various times been a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a Pentecostal Holiness, a Lutheran, a Mormon, a Tibetan Buddhist, a Foursquare Gospel, and an Episcopalian. I would have chosen to be Jewish, but I can never figure out how to meet the basic requirement of having my mother be Jewish. So, anyway. Uh, during my freshman year in college, I never found the time for church. Truth is, when I went off for college, all I wanted to be was a hippie, and I could not wait until I got to campus to find them. I started college in 1974. You know, college was a real interesting experience. In the first six months in college, I probably gained 50 pounds. I had been at my maintenance weight for a long time, and I don't think I got on a scale from probably 1974 to 1979. Um, I dropped out of college in the middle of my junior year um, for a variety of reasons, uh, not the least of which is I had spent all my food money on something other than food, and I couldn't figure out how I was going to eat if I didn't get a job. Um, I spent the next couple of years being a social outcast. And I lived on the streets in Charlotte, North Carolina for a while. I was, uh, I lived on Coca-Cola and NABs and pizza for 
the better part of 1977 and 1978, I lost a whole bunch of weight. I had this belief that pizza was the perfect food, and if I ate one pizza a day, I would be fine. Of course, I couldn't afford one pizza a day the way I was living. Uh, I managed to get out of that. I met a woman, got married. She got pregnant. We had kids. Um, at the age of 28, I lost my driver's license for reckless driving that should have been driving under the influence, and I ended up uh, joining the Army. The Army taught me a couple of things. One was uh, that if I ran 12 miles a week, I could eat anything I wanted. Now, that's one of the delusions that uh, I want to talk about here today. You know, the delusion that if we managed well, you know, I had this belief that, you know, managing well meant running 12 miles a week. While I was in the Army, I was perpetually on a diet. When I joined the Army, I was right at the highest weight that one could be to get in. Uh, when I got out of basic training, I weighed 135 pounds, which was way below what I should weigh. Um, within three weeks of graduating from basic training, I was back up to 170 pounds. Um, made it through four years in the Army, finished my degree, got out, moved to Washington, D.C. I thought I was a success. I thought I had it made. Uh, my ex-wife threw a wrench in the gears in January 1989 when she woke up with the DTs. Uh, that introduced me to 12-step programs. I did not know what alcoholism was. I didn't know that my wife was an alcoholic. Um, she ended up going into a rehab. Well, she ended up going into about 27 rehabs in the next three years. And I discovered my first 12-step program, which is Al-Anon. I went to my first meeting in uh, the spring of 1989, and I walked into this meeting, and a little old lady handed me a card with the 12 steps on it and um, asked me if I would read them before the meeting. So I picked up the card, I read the 12 steps, and I said, these are profound spiritual concepts that everyone should want to apply to their lives. And she replied, yeah, but you'll never do them unless your ass is on fire. I was sort of shocked this blue-haired lady said that to me, but, you know, I had no idea at the time how prophetic her words would be. I threw myself into research. I bought books. I went to meetings. I studied. I made plans. Mostly I made plans for how my wife was supposed to recover. As Bill says on page 7 in his story, surely the answer was self-knowledge. In March of that year, I... Uh, decided to, uh, against my will, to attend an AA meeting. And I, uh, in July of that year, I decided that it wouldn't do me any harm to stop drinking. As a matter of fact, what I really decided was I could set a fine example for my ex of uh, sobriety if I quit drinking. And interestingly enough, I weighed about 175 pounds at the time that I made that decision. Uh, within three months, I weighed over 230 pounds. I have a little bit of a problem. Yeah. By 1995, well, 1994, I was involved in eight different fellowships and had no recovery. 
Um, in 94, I found a diet and started obsessively following it and told myself that that was an OA program and I lost a lot of weight, got a new job, started going to a gym, uh, got down to 170 pounds, told my ex that I wanted a divorce. Um, long story short, in November of 1995, I went from... Well, let's see, I had six years sober, seven years of no drugs, a year with no sugar, a year with no caffeine, five years with no tobacco, and on November 30th, I picked up one of those, and by Christmas, I was doing them all again. Um, Fortunately, this relapse only lasted for about four months. Um, I came back to AA because I didn't know where else to go. And I struggled for a long time there. You know, I lost a lot of weight while I was in relapse because I chose to use drugs and drink instead of eating. Um, But then got sober, and within six months of being sober, I gained back 35 pounds again. Uh, In 1999, I met a man in a meeting who uh, taught me the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I watched him for about three months before I asked him for help. And he, uh, I think he figured me out pretty well in those three months because when we sat down to do the steps for the first time, he he gave me a week to get prepared for talking about step one. He said, I want you to get together with me next week and be prepared to tell me why you think you're an alcoholic. And then I came and I spent about an hour, hour and a half talking about why I thought I was qualified to be that. And he just looked at me and said, you know, I said, do you think working the steps will help you with that problem? I said, yeah. He said, are you willing to work them? I said, yeah. He said, well, then show up next week with a list of people you're pissed off at. Oh, by the way, you just did steps one, two, and three. And I'm like, wait a minute. I wanted to argue. I wanted to discuss and debate. I had all these opinions and theories and theologies that needed to be resolved before I could make a decision to turn my will and my life over the care of that G word. And I just, you know, needed to hear all that out. And he looked at me and very simply explained that I'd asked him to be my sponsor and that was how he sponsored and that he had no right to do it any other way. So I showed up. I kept doing the simple, stupid things that he asked me to do. You know, in, three, in the first year that I was working with him, he took me through the steps three times before he uh, started having me take other people through the steps. For 14 years, I faithfully got together with him week after week after week. My AA sponsor and I had a lot in common. We shared a common profession. We shared the same level of education. We had both enjoyed the same mind-altering substances. We had both lived on the streets in the youth as a result of those things. There was one major and significant difference between the two of us. He was absolutely convinced he was an alcoholic. He often said, I have 20 years of practicing active alcoholism and 20 years of practicing recovering from alcoholism. That makes me uniquely qualified to help other alcoholics. This never rang true for me. No matter how much I worked one-on-one with alcoholics, it never relieved my emotional turmoil. In fact, working intensely with other alcoholics often drove me to the food. 
when I would speak with him about this, he would say, oh, just eat less and get another pigeon. My truth was that no matter what substance I used to deal with my emotions, it always led me back to the food. Yeah, I might use something to stay off the food for a while, but it never satisfied. It was never the answer to my problem. The answer was always the food. Uh, when 19, well, no, it would have been 2012, 2013, um, he ended our relationship. Um, I was being particularly nasty with him. And he just said to me one day, you no longer have any respect for me. I want you to find a different sponsor because maybe we'll be able to salvage our friendship if I'm no longer your sponsor. At the time, it seemed like a major crisis, but in hindsight, it seems like one of the best things that ever happened. Um, I had joined, rejoined the pay and weigh program that I had lost a bunch of weight for in 2008. I weighed in at 240 pounds when I rejoined. I lost 50 pounds real quickly. Um, I said the hell with it in 2012 because I've been stuck on a plateau and gained back 35 pounds by Christmas time. Then in the September of 2014, my new wife, and she didn't even mention getting married again, but I did meet someone who was sane and sober and reasonable after I left the other, you know, been happily married for quite a few years now. She went to her annual physical in September of 2014, came home in a snit about how she had only lost X number of pounds in the past year. And I went back and I looked at my online weight record and I saw that in September of 11, 12, and 13, I had been virtually the same weight. And that set me off on a bench. But it was a silent bench. It was a sneak bench. For a couple of weeks, I would go out to a meeting at night. I'd stop by a grocery store on my way home. I'd pick up my favorite bench food, and I would eat it in the car, and I'd stuff it in the trash can of the church down the street. And then I'd come home and eat something else. Um, on the 19th of September, I went to a graduation ceremony for one of my daughter's best friends, and she had just gotten completed her training as pastry chef. And the graduation ceremony included a room with about a 100-yard table full of desserts, and I ate one of each, and I managed to stick three of them in my pockets and sneak them out of the door under the watchful eye of a proctor who was making sure people couldn't do that. I woke up the next morning with the worst hangover I had had in years. I had been researching away again. I had been trying to find some way to apply the principles that my sponsor had taught me concerning AA to my food problem. Because it was really, really obvious to me that what I was doing wasn't working. That fighting the food was leading me to eating the food. Um, I found that there was a meeting right down the street from my house on Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock. So on the 20th of September, I showed up at 8.45 at a meeting down the street, and I, I helped set up. And it turned out that that meeting was 
a big book study group for, well, also on Monday, I went to another meeting that was a mile from my house in another direction, and that turned out to be a big book study group. <laughs> and, you know, I had been studying the big book for years. Like the, the Bible, I had memorized passages, more passages than most people have ever read. Um, I walked into those meetings in terrible pain, in absolute misery. I could see a train coming down the tracks toward me that was going to run me over, and that was all my weight coming back. I walked into those meetings, and I said, whatever you guys think I should do. Um, took me a while to find a sponsor. Found one by January, and I started. Yeah, I quit. I went to see a dietitian within a week or so, and I got a food plan, and I started following that food plan. So I date my abstinence from the 22nd of September of 2014 when I put down my, I made a commitment to, to not binge and put down my binge foods. Um, I have, since that day, you know, written down what I was going to eat every day. And, you know, in January of 2015, I actually found someone that I started calling my food into on a daily basis. I had to quit fighting the food. You know, so we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even the food. I didn't quit it fighting because I wanted because sanity returned. It was because I wanted sanity to return. Um, my trip through the steps in OA the first time was long and slow. It really, really contrasted to the way that my um, I had been taught to do the steps. I, of course, wanted to argue with this because it is my nature to argue. And so I would sit and read a question, read something about it, write about it, call and tell my sponsor about it, listen to what my sponsor had to say about it. And I did this for days and days and days and days and days. And so I finally got through steps one, two, and three. It took me about six months. And then we started on step four. And oh my God, after having done step four for years by writing it down on the back of an envelope who I was angry with and who, what I was afraid of and what I was ashamed of, I spent, there was 140 questions that I was expected to answer one a day. And I answered those questions and I, you know, talked about them. <laughs> End of that process. Um, my therapist said to me, I want you to stop analyzing so much. But, you know, the truth of the matter is I needed it. The, that long, slow thrip, trip through the steps was an act of surrender for me. It was necessary for me to say, while I have benefited from being trained on how to do these steps in another program, that program wasn't my primary program. That program wasn't what was going to treat the disease that I have. There were several things I learned in that trip through steps one, two, and three. One of them I was asked to make a, an analysis one day of the 
religion of my childhood to write down on the one side of the paper what what the negatives were of that and the other side of the paper what the positives were. You know, I very quickly wrote down the three or five things that were negatives, but I prayerfully considered the the things on the other side, and I came up with a list of almost a dozen positive attributes of my personality that clearly grew out of the church environment that I grew up in. I had to read the AA 12 and 12 for several times through during this period of time, and I... Yeah, I don't like the 12 and 12. It's irritating. You know, Bill Wilson was depressed when he wrote it. You know, I was all full of arguments about the 12 and 12. But, you know, I had surrendered. I knew that train was coming down the tracks toward me and that I had no way of stopping it from running me down. So I did what was suggested. I remember I'm reading either, I don't know whether it's chapter 2 or chapter 3 of the 12 and 12. And I went on a rant in my writing that day about the intellectual arrogance of Bill Wilson. I argued about how his definition of atheist was wrong and how his definition of agnostic was wrong and that he clearly was intellectually arrogant. Then I realized who the intellectually arrogant one was. Yeah. And we had ceased fighting anything or anyone especially Bill Wilson. <laughs> so the home group that I belong to talks about there being an immutable triumvirate of steps, tools, and traditions. You know, I knew the steps. I knew the traditions. The blessing that Overeaters Anonymous has given me is a set of tools, tools that I can use to make it, one, to make myself more willing to do the steps and to make me more capable of following the traditions. You know, my history is a history of substitution. You know, I had a problem with food. I found some drugs that helped me not eat the food. They didn't stop working, so I went back to the food. I married an alcoholic. Marrying an alcoholic distracted me from my problems. You know, trying to fix an alcoholic distracted me from my problems, but it drove me into the food. All of these things that I used as substitutions for this disease, including Alcoholics Anonymous. AA was really, really easy for me. You know, I I recovered very, very quickly, but I wasn't really recovered. You know, I was getting crazier and crazier all the time because I kept staying in a much more subtly deadly substance. So that brings us to the topic of what is recovery. What is it doesn't mean to be recovered. You know, Leah actually read something that I think really very clearly helps us to see this, and it's the section of the big book on pages 84 and 85 that follow right after uh, we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor, in my case food. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally 
we find that this has happened automatically, we will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. Okay, now, that last phrase leads me to ask the question, what does it mean to be in fit spiritual condition? Now, my arguing brain can get all involved in theology and religion and meditative practices and prayers, but, you know, one of the stories in the big book that I always refer to, oops, is when Bill and Dr. Bach are uh, brand new in recovery. It's right after Dr. Bob had done his eighth, eighth and ninth step. It said, but life was not easy for our two friends. They saw that they had to remain in fit spiritual conditions. So they called up the nurse at the local hospital and said, have you got an alcoholic prospect for us? There's a reading from August the 15th in For Today that I think is pertinent here. Few people can fail to generate a self-healing process when they become generally involved in the healing in healing others. Theodore Isaac Rubin. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous describes one of the great early discoveries of that fellowship. In looking for a key, a common pattern among those alcoholics who recovered, it was found that the one action taken by all of them was helping another alcoholic. In each instance, the newly sober AAs, some just released from the hospital, went out and tried to help an alcoholic who was still suffering. For today, OA doesn't hand out degrees to qualify one to help another compulsive overeater. I have all the inner sources I need to do that now. What is recovered? On page 102, in the big book, it tells it says, your job now is to be at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others. So never hesitate to go anywhere if you can be helpful. You should not hesitate to visit the most sordid spot on earth on such an errand. Keep on the firing line of life with these motives and God will keep you unharmed. You know, I'm really blessed that I don't have to go to the most sordid places on earth <laughs> to find other compulsive overeaters to help. You know, I uh, I have OA meetings a mile from my house. You know, I as I said before, I've never been on a phone meeting because there are so many face-to-face meetings within close proximity to my house that I I'm able to go there. You know, I should step back and say that I continued the process through the steps. Now, it's important to note that this paragraph about ceasing finding anyone in anything is in the 10th step. 
you know, just before the uh, the paragraph on finding anything or anyone, it says our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. You know, how do we stay spiritually fit? Well, in my case, I start off my day with a prayer and then I take a phone call. Then I figure out what I'm going to eat for the day and I write it down. And then I pull out some reading and write and, and read something that's been assigned to me by my sponsor and then I write about it. Then a little while later, I pick up the phone and I call my sponsor and I say, this is what I'm going to eat today and here's what I wrote today. I also make a commitment throughout the day to pick up my phone and make a phone call. I very often will say that the most spiritual thing I do on a daily basis is actually pick up my phone when I know who's on the other end of it. You know, spirituality to me is all wrapped up in the practice of steps 10, 11, and 12. You know, it says on page 124 in the big book that showing others who suffer, how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession. You have the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. One of the things that I have discovered in Overeaters Anonymous is that the way that I was taught to do the steps by my AA sponsor is just an effect, as effective a tool for helping other compulsive eaters. You know, God willing, no one else will have to go through the years of suffering in other 12-step programs to get to the education that I got on, on how to do the steps and how ineffective they can be when you're still in the midst of your addiction. But as a result of that dark past, as I see it, I've been able to sit down with a handful of people in the past two years and take them through the steps in the very quick manner that I was taught to take people through the steps in AA. And I have begun to see the fruits of that work. And what are the fruits of that work? watching those same people take other people who have the same problem through the solution. You know, there's a lot of pain underneath my eating. You know, the first few months of abstinence were a time of tears for me. As I said, both of my early OA groups were big book studies. I would go to the Saturday morning big book group and we would read a chapter. In particular, we were reading there as a solution and it seemed like we read it for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I would find myself bawling uncontrollably. Sections of the big book that I had memorized, sections of the big book that I had read for over 20 years, had a new meaning. They triggered emotional responses. We have to deal with the emotional turmoil. It is the emotional turmoil that drives me into the food. The steps are the tool for dealing with that emotional turmoil. But 
the other thing that is necessary for that emotional turmoil is I have to actually feel this. You know, that same same sponsor who taught me to do the steps in AA used to say to me, any feeling that you let yourself feel will only last for 10 minutes. But any feeling that you resist will last for as long as you choose to resist it. That which we resist persists, which is remarkably like fighting anything or anybody. You know, if I'm fighting my feelings, yeah. I had someone to make the observation to me once that my morality would be my undoing. And at the time, I thought they were talking about my judgment of other people and how I looked down my nose at other people. But as I have found more and more freedom in recovery, I realized that what they were really talking about was my judgment of myself. I look at myself and I find myself wanting. How do I treat that? Well, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about a way of life. It talks about Uh, It says on page 42 and 43, I've since been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and, I hope, more useful than the life I lived before. My old manner of living was by no means a bad one, but I would not exchange its best moments for the worst I have now. I would not go back, even if I could. That phrase brings up the concept of usefulness. Now, in the doctor's opinion, uh, Dr. Silkworth talks twice uses the term altruism to discuss the early fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. What is altruism? Altruism is unselfish regard for the needs of others. You know, now, you know, I've often asked myself, how on earth does a uh, codependent like me, you know, have unselfish regard for the needs of others. I used to be haunted by the paragraph at the bottom of pages 19 and 20 where it would say, most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings of viewpoints in respect to their opinions or attitudes which make us more useful to others. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers, compulsive eaters, depend upon our constant thought of others and how we can help to meet their needs. That was really, really hard work for me for 16 years in AA. It's not hard work for me today. And what's the difference? The difference, the way I see it, is the fifth tradition. Overeaters Anonymous has but one purpose, and that's to carry the message of Overeaters Anonymous, or an OA group has but one purpose. That's to carry the message of Overeaters Anonymous to those who still suffer. When I find someone else who suffers from precisely the same problem that I suffer from, it's no longer hard work for me to open myself to that person. You know, I think the greatest gift that I receive today is that I have people who call me and ask for help. I love being a sponsor. I love getting calls from people. I love making phone calls. I love receiving calls from people. 
because the people that call me are talking about what's going on within me. It talks about on page 84, we vigorously commenced this way of living as we cleaned up the past. We have entered the world of the spirit. Now, this is the world of the spirit. The world of the spirit is inhabited by people. You know, and how do I get connected with the spirit? I get connected through you. You know, it's so odd here doing this meeting with not even knowing that anyone's listening to me. I'm sure there are people out there. I mean, I listened to a bunch of the archive calls in the past week. So I know people are going to unmute their phones here in a few minutes and talk about what I've talked about. But I've never given a talk in any fellowship where I wasn't able to look into the faces of the people I'm talking to. And I, oh, something just beeped. I'm sorry, that was my phone that just beeped. Okay, well, let's see, I've gone on for 45 minutes. A couple other things I want to say. Um, Usefulness. I wanted to get back to attitudes that make us useful to others. In order for me to escape from the self-centered self-hatred that drives me into the food, I need to know that I'm worthwhile. Having watched other people do the steps with my help reminds me that I'm useful. Watching another person take someone through the steps and knowing that I had some small part to play and then being able to do that helps me to feel useful. Picking up the phone and talking to someone and having had an experience like that person's going through and being able to relate my way of dealing with that experience makes me feel useful. Usefulness, I think, leads to happiness. The seven-step prayer, I ask God to remove from or to have all of me good and bad to remove from me the defects of character that stand in the way of my usefulness to God and my fellows. And it asked me to, you know, and then I asked for strength to do, you know, to go forward with that. You know, I think that I have to point out that I got up this morning and I read for today, which I do every morning, and it made me laugh out loud because... One of the things I truly believe in is synchronicity. And I chose this topic probably a month, month and a half ago. And then this morning's reading for October 23rd says, Discord gives a relish for Concord. Uh, I can't pronounce this. Plugivillius Cirrus. Fighting the disease of compulsive overeating is fighting myself. That struggle gave me a deep appreciation of the peace I found in OA. That is one reason not to regret what I had to go through to get here. Being human, however, I will bring discord into my life. I sometimes get angry over my own and others' mistakes. I argue over minor matters as though my life depended on it. I eat too much and I hate myself for it. I thank God I can accept all that today 
I am a human being and a compulsive overeater recovering one day at a time. For today, I am aware of the program, and I am aware of the progress I have made in this program. My moments of discord show me how great my blessings are. And with that, I think I'm done. Thank you very much, John, for your captivating and profound story of experience, strength, and hope this morning. Thank you for sharing your beautiful insights with us and your experience. Your service is greatly appreciated. John's contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. And we'll now transition to questions. And you can ask a question by pressing star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. Charles H. Good morning, Charles. One moment. Anyone else? All right, Charles, you're going to break the ice this morning. Go right ahead. I didn't catch the first name there. Leslie, L-E-S-L-I-E-M. Got it. Anyone else? Suji. Suji. Okay, let's start with this trilogy. Charles H., go right ahead. Hi, good morning. Thanks, Blair, for your service, your continued service. Thank you, John, um, for a great qualification. I've got a one-plus question. Uh, so the first part is, how do you feel now that you carry the message? It sounds like you by yourself, but you're going to have thousands and thousands of people eventually listen to this great qualification. I want to see how you feel. How do you feel after have, having have done so, um, even though you think, well, I don't know what you think, but you, according to your um, qualification, you thought it, it's weird, and, and I could identify with that because it's like you're talking and it's like nobody else at the time is listening. So how do you feel about that now that you've conquered that? And, and the second piece is you said um I was listening attentively and you said that uh you um you know you start your day with prayer which I, I know the power of prayer but you said something that, that was interesting to me. You said you, you, you started your day with prayer and you read you know you read some literature and then you um you you know you send uh your your what you're gonna um consume for the day uh to your sponsor. Do you do you do that on the day or do you do it the night before? And and with that I pass. Thanks. Okay, Charles, thanks for your question. Number one, how I mostly feel right at the moment is relieved that there are actually people there. <laughs> so um you know, ask me tomorrow how I how I feel in re, upon reflection. You know, I, I I've been told that there's three talks you give when you're you're given a speaker meeting. One is the one you planned on giving. One is the one you actually gave, and the third is the one you wish you had given when you finished. So, right now, I feel pretty comfortable with what I had to say. Uh, on the question of prayer, I keep and and of 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 writing down my food. I keep my prayer really simple in the morning. I sit on the side of my bed and I just ask for direction and strength. You know, the the twelve step or the eleven step says asking only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. I had that distilled down to me to as direction and strength many years ago, and that's my first prayer of the morning because I never forget to say that when I'm sitting on the side of the bed. Um, on the question of do I do it every day? 
I'm one of these crazy people that's up between four and five o'clock every morning. Like I said, I've, I've awakened early and hungry all my life. So yes, I actually do that first thing in the morning. I sit down, you know, I have a plan from a dietitian of a balanced food plan that I follow and I write down what I know I've already prepared. Now I do a lot of pre-preparing of food. You know, when I get off the phone today, I'll spend a couple of hours today getting things ready for this week so that I can just go to the refrigerator, pull out the things that are there, write down what I'm going to have, and then check them off against the categories that I'm supposed to follow. And then by 7.45, I've got, you know, my first sponsor call is at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I call my sponsor at 7.45 in the morning. So I, I generally have... Um, two hours, two hours and a half to get that done. And some mornings I am rushing to get it written down between 25 after 7 and 7.45. But, yeah, it is a daily practice in the morning. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank, thank you, Charles. And Leslie M., your turn. Hi, this is Leslie M. I just wanted to thank you, John, for your sharing because it really touched me this morning. And the part that I was wondering if you could elaborate about is, you know, about feeling the feelings. Um, you know, I still find myself wanting to run away. And um, and what you when you said my judgment of myself is the worst thing and that I always find myself lacking is is you know is what spoke to me so so very deeply um in fact i wrote it down um so i was wondering if you could just um you know some anything else i mean i i definitely heard what you said about being useful to others and that that makes me that allows me to see myself differently um and i was wondering if you if there was anything else that was especially helpful to you on that in that on that front that's a really good question you know, I I have been really blessed. That my my home group actually does anniversary celebrations for the the year of anniversaries. Um, you know, for people and people choose to come and, and celebrate. And this past year, I have been able to attend the celebration of a person who had 18 years of abstinence, a person who had 10 years of abstinence, and a person who had five years of abstinence. And each of those people said something that resonated so very, very strongly with me. And that was, even at X number of years of abstinence, I still have to feel the feelings. You know, I am so grateful for the tool that was added to Overeaters Anonymous, between when I was a member in 93 through 96 and when I came back in 2014 of the action plan. You know, my, my home group does a reading about action plan every week, and it talks about how important sometimes it is for us to um, seek out the help of an appropriate professional for dealing with these things. You know, I found when I was very early in my OA recovery that I needed professional help for dealing with my feelings. You know, and so I have been seeking the help of a therapist because there were a lot of days where the tears were so overwhelming that I couldn't make it back to work. 
and early abstinence. And, you know, fortunately, those days are few and far between now. But I've had a really rough year this year. One of the things I wanted to talk about that, that totally slipped my mind now that um, was the physical problems that I've had this year. You know, as I said in my story, I, I ran 12 miles a week for many, many years to re, to to manage my weight. Well, as a result of that running and numerous broken ankles, I've had total ankle replacements in both of my ankles. Well, as a result of overdoing it on replacement ankles, I've had to have both of my ankle replacements repaired in the past year. And I'm sitting here with my foot propped up this morning recovering from my third ankle surgery in 2016 on my left ankle. (sighs) To say I'm happy about my physical condition would be an understatement. But I have to feel it. You know, I'm not in pain. I'm aggravated. I'm irritated. I'm frustrated. The good news is I was in pain. You know, when I when I first had these replacements, and I was in pain when I broke the replacements and had to have them replaced. What I've got right now is the result of surgery that keeps I'm non load bearing, and I have been for weeks and weeks and weeks. But that makes me upset with myself. What do I do when I'm upset with myself? I pick up the phone and I call somebody else. You know, it is amazing to me what a wonderful tool the telephone is. You know, I take a photograph, I take my phone out and I take a snapshot of the We Care meeting of every meeting that I go to. And I make it a point to make three phone calls a day. And I try to call someone new at least once a week. You know, because, I mean, what I mean by someone that I don't normally call, not necessarily a newcomer, you know, because that human connection, you know, I invariably find that when I'm all caught up in my feelings, if I call you up and say, I'm feeling such and such, and you say, oh, I'm feeling the same way, you know, that when I share my feelings, they're lessened. When I hold them in, they, they're they strengthened, you know. But the worst part is when I start telling myself I shouldn't feel this way. You know, I, I went to see my therapist this week, and she said, well, do you think you're depressed? And I actually said, yes, I'm depressed. Well, but in the midst of being depressed over the fact that I can't walk right now, I still can get around on crutches. I still can get around on a cart. I I have a wheelchair. I get out and about. I still make it to my meetings. But, you know, in spite of how I feel, I was able to bring my experience, strength, and hope to you guys this morning because this is what alleviates that self-centeredness. I hope that answers your question. Absolutely. Thank you, John. I really appreciate your speaking. Thank you. I have a question. Thank you, Leslie M. We're going to go to Sue G., and then we'll grab some more people. Go ahead, Sue. I'd like to be next. Thank you. After her. I didn't catch your name. Elaine. Elaine. Thank you. Okay, and Sue G., please go ahead. Hi, John. I appreciate your service and your... I, I can't imagine ever giving a a talk <laughs> without people right there. Um, but I, you said something about, I was wondering how long you've been working with your sponsor, that you're still doing readings and uh, writings and reporting what you've written. Um, 
I've stayed connected to my sponsor after we went through the steps by going through the 12-12 once a week, and um, I really appreciate that. I just wondered how that worked out for you, that that you continued with your sponsor where normally you're kind of, you give service and you kind of lose track of your sponsor except to report in and just say how you're doing. Thanks. Well, again, I I call my sponsor every day to, to report my food. You know, and um, as and I also continue to read things. You know, there's a wealth of literature out there that we can read, and I'm unfortunate. I mean, that's part of what you know the group that I belong to. It's one. You know, we try to integrate the tools into our daily existence. You know, and the tool of reading and writing to me is a daily tool. You know, I. I'm really grateful to have a sponsor who wants that from me. You know, I have two people that I sponsor who do the same thing with me. And, you know, as my old AA sponsor used to say, well, that's the way I was taught to do it, so that's the way I'm going to expect you to do it. You know, my sponsor was is expected to pick up the phone and call this sponsor and, um, you know, talk about you know what he's read and written that day too. So, you know, I... It's just a part of what I do. You know, my morning ritual is, you know, and again, I keep it really simple. I've got a, a little notebook. You know, I mentioned in my um, sharing that my therapist told me that to quit all the analysis. She also gave me a little book and told me, don't write more than one page a day in this. So I read um, a daily, right now I'm reading uh a book of daily readings, and I read the daily reading, and then I reflect on one page in this journal about it. So it's not an extensive amount of writing. It's a fairly small amount of writing, but it surprises me on a regular basis what comes out of the end of my pen. You know, when I put my thoughts down on paper, they reveal things to me that I don't see when they're bouncing around in my head. And even worse, when I then have to read that out loud to my sponsor, I have to tell on myself, you know. But this sort of doubles back to the previous question. This is part of how I deal with my feelings. Very often I get a clue as to why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling when I look at what I've written down in the mornings. Does that answer your question? I was just wondering how long you've been doing this with your sponsor. I mean, Uh, you continued after you finished the steps. Yeah, I started actually doing this in January of 2015, and I've done it every day since except for the few rare days when I've been traveling overseas and been unable to make the phone connection. So, And to me, I see it as something that I will not stop doing as long as I'm around. You know, I don't see – I believe that the steps are like a clock, that when I get to 12, it takes me immediately back to one mm-hmm. because Thank I you. have to keep going through them. You know, that that I'm either going to take someone else through them or I'm going to go through them again myself. You know, I, I do think that working 10, 11, and 12 on a daily basis is, is part of being recovered, but I think that, you know, returning to step one again and again and again and very quickly getting through the first nine is a good practice, you know, whether it's with somebody else or 
well, either way, it's with someone else. It's whether I'm the receiver or the giver. Thank you, John. You're welcome. Thank you, Sue G. Elaine, it is your turn. Uh, hi, my name is Elaine. I'm a compulsive reader from the West Coast. Uh, thank you, John, for your story. Um, mine parallels yours a, a great deal, even our age and eating my way out of the university. Um, uh, I, I just want to say something. Um, you, you say you're recovered, um, and I want to know what is, is it? Is it step 11 and 12? I'm coming up on um, uh, 30, uh, 32, 31 years of sobriety and 22 years of abstinence next month. And um, after relapsing in both programs for many, many years, and I'm still uncomfortable with saying recovered. Um, I don't even say I'm a recovering compulsive overeater. I have such a profound respect for this disease that I'm afraid. And would you say your your comfortability with saying recovered in both programs is predicated on you doing steps 10, 11, and 12? Because I don't do them all on a regular basis, so maybe that's my problem. Thank you. I think that what the big book tells us is that to be recovered is to live in 10, 11, and 12. You know, I... Uh, I have to continue to watch for, you know, the things that I have to pull the book out here. <laughs> um, let me say, I don't think that I'm well. I don't think that I'm fixed. I don't think that I am beyond relapsing. I think what it means to be recovered is to be in the condition it talks about on page 85 where we're not fighting it, we're not avoiding temptation, we feel like we're in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. But there's a caveat that goes on with that at the end of that paragraph where it says we have to keep in fit spiritual condition. It goes on in the next paragraph to say it is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol or food, either one is a subtle foe. We are not cured of alcoholism. What we have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I best serve thee, thy will not mine be done? These are thoughts that must go with us constantly. We can use our willpower along this line all we wish. It's the proper use of the will. That paragraph very clearly tells me that, you know, and it goes on to talk about steps 10 and 11, but then the start of the next chapter is, you know, well, actually, at the end of this chapter, there's action and more action. I can't rest on my laurels. I can't sit and say, oh, it's great that I've got all this time. You know, at 18 years of sobriety, I was virtually suicidal when I came to Overeaters Anonymous. I couldn't live the way I was living anymore. That pain drove me to a willingness to do this every day. I don't want to go backwards. You know, I'm really blessed that I have a phone full of contacts of people who call me on a regular basis and who I call on a regular basis. You know, thank God for sponsees. You know, I've got one sponsee who 
calls every morning at 5 o'clock. And that is such a blessing to me. It gets my day started. You know, it reminds me, this is who I am, and this is what I need to do. You know, I think that, you know, when when I'm not working with another compulsive eater, I'm in danger. You know, and I I believe in continually going through the steps. You know, people I sponsor, you know, <laughs> it's, you know, I was taught that it's my job to pay attention when you need to go through the steps if I'm sponsoring you. And it's my sponsor's job to pay attention when I need to go through the steps. And we're we're there to help each other. You know, I used to think of sponsorship as dealing with an authority figure. And what I've learned in Overeaters Anonymous is that we're all peers. We're all walking hand in hand and side by side doing this together. And that's what doing 10 and 11 and 12 are to me. I don't do 10 in isolation. I don't do 11 in isolation. I, and I certainly don't do 12 in isolation. I do these in community. You know, it's this is a disease of isolation. I have to get out of myself in order to be recovered. As long as I'm doing this by myself, for myself, I'm still in the disease. So I don't mean to sound preachy. I'm sorry. My grandmother was probably right. <laughs> Not appreciate it all. Thank you. Thank you, Elaine. We're we're good with all that. We're good with all that, John. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, who else has a question for John this morning? I have a question. My name and is Roz. Roz. Okay, one moment, Roz. Who else? Star one to unmute. This is Marla from Iowa. Iowa. I didn't catch your name. Marla. Marla from Iowa. And who else was there? Martha S. Martha S. Rob H. And Rob. Good morning to you. Okay, let's start with Roz, please. Okay, thank you. Um, John, my name is Roz I'm from Florida. I just wanted to tell you, um, your talk was profound. Um I was sitting here taking notes and listening, and um, I just so got so much out of it. So thank you so much. Um, my question has to do with um, the spiritual experience. What I would like to ask you is when did you begin to see the personality change that they talk about in the spiritual experience at the back of the book, big book or um, the profound alteration in your reaction to life? Did that happen subtly? did that happen all at once or did it happen, you know, little by little? Um, Because that's a big thing that's always been talked about in recovery is uh, the, you know, the personality change, the change in how you react and that, you know, your rearrangement of of your thoughts and, and the way you deal with life and people. I would like to know when that happened and how long into your steps did you experience that or whatever you'd like to share on your spiritual experience, I would love to hear. Thank you. That's a really good That's question, really good and I appreciate it. Uh, I would say there were turning points in a subtle experience. You know, I spoke of one of the turning points, and that was when I did that inventory of the religion of my childhood. You know, I think that spiritual experience is a result of surrender. You know, I I surrendered the fight 
about religion that day. I conceded that for me to recover from the pain that I was feeling, I needed to just give up caring whether my theology was right, whether my grandmother was right, whether my parents were right, whether my sponsor was right, and just let that go. But, you know, what came to mind when you asked the question, though, was that when I had about, oh, nine months absent, my wife looked at me and said, I don't know about all this OA and all this therapy. You actually seem a whole lot worse now than you were a year ago. Reality was, the year before that, I had been in the food. I had been using the food to stuff my feelings. I had to grow through those feelings. I had to live through them. That first surrender made a difference, but that was another spiritual turning point for me when she said that to me because I had to step back, you know, and I actually think that was right when I was in the middle of my ninth step amends. And I had to, you know, make further amends to her, you know, and part of what I had to do was say, you know, I can't dump these emotions on her. You know, and what has happened, you know, it's it's really interesting because probably a month and a half ago, we were coming back from attending a wedding, and she made an observation to me, sort of an apology to me for having said that to me a year ago, and said, you know, I can see the difference today. So it's been subtle, and... I can't I can't pinpoint where it happened but I do know that in it was I really believe that the wording of the 12th step is intentional having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps you know I was in the steps when it occurred and I think that one of the ways to remain in a spiritual experience is to keep staying in the steps. You know, they are, you know, I have a history of diabetes in my family. Fortunately, I didn't get it. I managed to somehow avoid that that problem. But, you know, those people who have diabetes need to take their insulin every day or it kills them. You know, I have compulsive eating. I need to take the steps every day or it kills me. Yeah, so that spiritual experience is it ebbs and flows. You know, I'd love to be high all the time, <laughs> but I don't get that opportunity. <laughs> Does that answer your question, Ross? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Roz. Marla. Marla from Iowa had a question. Yes, can you hear me? Yes, go right ahead. Hi, John. Thanks so much. Loved your whole presentation. Um, question for you regarding step ten. Um, I know some people, when they do their step tens, they do like a real formal process of kind of going through 
the sheets and they write out on different sheets, you know, who am I resentful at or what am I afraid of? And they take it through the steps and do the little checkoffs. Did it affect my self-esteem, my relationships, all those things. And then they take you through that actual formal process like we did when we actually do the step four written inventory. Um, And then I, I guess, and some people take it literally right out of the big book, you know, where it says continue to watch for these things and then ask God to remove them. Where it says discuss them with someone immediately, make amends. Do you practice your step tense always like in accordance with the, that paragraph in there, the one paragraph in there that describes the step tense process? Or do you consider it a step 10 like you're talking a lot about dealing with your feelings and calling people? Is is that also in your mind a step ten process? Just when you call someone and say, "Hey, I'm just feeling like crap right now," or um, "I'm edgy," or whatever, um, or do you do it in the actual step ten paragraph format on eighty four? And um, I had another piece of this question. Um, I can't remember it. As you're talking, it might come back to me. So that that's my question. How do you? Do, oh, I know. Do, where it says we talk to someone immediately. Do, do you take that literally too, out, right out of that paragraph, like immediately? I mean, obviously you can't do it if you're in the middle of surgery or something, but as soon as, soon as possible to it. Can you just explain how you actually interpret and work the tense for yourself? Yeah, you know, I don't follow a formal process. You know, it's in, as part of my preparation for this talk, because I had never actually been on this phone meeting, I listened to our, several archives, including um, Harlan's talk on Step 10 from a couple of weeks ago, and I listened to all that talk about formal process, and I thought, that's pretty cool. That's not how I do this. That's not how I was taught to do it. You know, I the way I was taught Step 10 is that it's an integrated part of Step 11. You know, coupled with asking for direction and strength first thing in the morning, it's my job to sit down and reflect before I go to bed at night on my day and look for where I received direction and strength. Now, I also believe that it's important for me to stay in touch with what's going on through the day. Um I have to be careful not to make these steps a set of rules that I have to follow to the letter. I have a serious perfectionist tendency that will kick in if I tell myself I have to do this or I'm a failure. You know, and so it's much more important for me to make the human connection throughout the day. And what usually happens with me is that I don't even realize that I'm doing a 10th step until I've already discovered one of these, you know, some resentment or selfishness or dishonesty in a conversation with someone else. You know, I I guess I'm, <laughs> yeah. So, So, you know, if now, on the other hand, if I find myself bubbling up with resentment, believe me, I'm getting on the phone. You know, and like I said, I've got a bunch of contacts in my phone that are, you know, pre-programmed and, you know, I'll just start going through them. It's funny. I, I can take calls where I work and, you know, there are many days when I will dial five people and leave five messages and 
when the first one calls me back, the other five will call. <laughs> uh-huh. So does that answer your question? It does. It's kind of a relief because I think there are times like in my perfectionistic brain too that when I'm, uh, if I'm doing something and maybe I'll just call something, I'm, I'm having a tough day or I think I'm in self-pity, but I don't follow the actual formal procedure of where was I being selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, or afraid. I, it, it's still in your mind good enough qualifies as doing my 10th step work on a daily basis. Well, again, I think the 10th step is continuing to take personal inventory and when we're wrong, promptly admitted it. You know, okay. I also think that if Bill had been 15 years sober when he wrote that step, he would have said and when we were right, promptly forgot it. <laughs> yeah. Because I get in a whole lot more trouble being right than I do wrong these days. You know, I'll That's beat myself true. to death for being wrong, but I'll beat you to death for be- me being right. So... <laughs> Well, thank you, John. Very You're welcome. Thank you, Marla. Martha S. Hi. Good morning. This is Martha S. in Upstate New York. Thank you, John, for your story, and thank you, Leah, for your service. Um, my question was very similar to the last callers. Uh, I'm not sure what else I can add, but I'll I'll see. Um, that paragraph on page 84 about step 10 where we continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And when these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. Um, Let's see if I can explain this uh, (laughs) clearly. I've been working and living in steps 10 and 11 and 12 for a year and a half. And um, I know I've talked to a lot of people about this, my sponsor and other people in the program. Some people do call someone immediately when they feel a feeling that's a that you know a strong feeling that's a result of these um, self-seeking, dishonest, selfish, or fearful thoughts. And some people do what I try to do, which is to pause, um, practice pausing and asking um, my higher power to remove that those selfish self-seeking thoughts um, because it's the thoughts that lead to the feeling. Um, but then, you know, if, if if I'm still being judgmental about someone, then I will, um, if the thoughts keep coming back, then I need to do a written inventory. And then if it's still hanging in there and I've done since six and seven, I've prayed, it's still hanging in there, then I will definitely call someone and give my inventory away. And I will definitely call someone if I need to make an amends. Um, I'm just confused by that one sentence. Maybe you... Um, I'd love your opinion. So it says we discuss oh. them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. That can be read two ways. <laughs> um, we always call someone immediately um, and or we only call someone if we think we've harmed someone. Um, so anyway, how do you how do you balance pausing and connecting with your higher power and seeking that guidance? Thank uh, you, Martha. Always picking up the phone, and with that, I will I will pass. Thank you. Okay, I think the answer to the question is in the last sentence of the paragraph. Love and tolerance of others is our code. I think love and tolerance of ourselves is also our code. You know. I have to be reasonable about this. You know, I I know when I'm so stirred up that I need to get someone on the phone. 
you know, that's when I need to discuss it immediately. You know, if if I have a recurring emotion that I can't get away from and I've prayed for it to be removed and it got worse or and especially if, you know, somebody else's food starts talking to me while I'm thinking about it, I surely need to get on the phone. But I make it a habit of getting on the phone at least four times a day any way you look at it. So, you know, for me to put a formal set of questions that I have to ask and a time frame around that, you know, the the rule that I follow is pick up the phone and call three people a day in addition to calling my sponsor. You know, that in that process, I I build um, a mechanism for doing this, and I don't I don't necessarily need to follow a script. You know, I I think the script is great. I mean, I've actually you know had these you know the paragraph on page eighty six pinned up on my mirror. You know, many times. You know, when we retire at night, we constructively do our day where we resentful, selfish, dishonest, afraid, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I don't want to make this more, you know, the last thing that Dr. Bob said to Bill Wilson was let's not, you know, let's keep this thing simple. Let's not mess it up with all kinds of Freudian things. I think we also not to, need to not make it a hard and fast set of rules because my problem when I start saying, well, I didn't follow that rule, it's like, uh, I didn't follow that rule, I'm wrong. When I'm wrong, then what's the use? And what I'm looking for is how to make myself useful to God and my fellows and how to avoid what's the use. And, and a rigid set of rules that I have to follow consistently makes me feel useless at times. Does that answer your question? Yes, yes, it does. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Martha S. And our final question this morning comes from Rob H. Good morning, Rob. Good good morning. Um, John, thank you so much. And um, it's always good to hear your voice and to talk to you. I'm, I'm blessed to be able to do that. And uh, um, I think what, what occurred to me, there, there were two, two quick things. One, I noticed that, um, you know, you didn't even mention the stuff that you've been going through with your ankle, which, which for me, if I, you know, when I have a physical ailment, you know, it's at the top of my list of what I want to talk about. And yet it became a, an afterthought to somebody's question today. And so it's like, obviously you've been, you, you, you do something to, to get out of yourself. And I guess, I guess maybe that's giving service, but I think in doing that, what occurred to me is in your early part of your early talk, you talked about all the various religions that you were part of growing up. And one of the things that I want to talk about or I would like you to talk about a little bit is, you know, I know that that's okay. I just, I have a hard time working with other people. I don't want to say, how do you work with other people who, you know, are completely different than you? I mean, I know we're all the same and that we have our disease, but if they have a different set of beliefs, it's hard for me to work with somebody who is not at least somewhere along the lines of my my similar belief. I don't I don't tell them that's not right, but I also have a hard time, you know, working with them. Does that make any sense? Yes, it does. Okay, thank you. Rob, 
again, thanks for for asking the question. Uh, I think there's a great deal of difference between beliefs and faith. You know, I think that I want to argue on a regular basis about beliefs. My brain just argues about beliefs. There's nothing that I like better than a knockdown, drag out battle about theology. My experience, though, is that what that will often do is lead to a discouragement of faith on the part of the person that I'm having that conversation with. You know, I have worked these steps as an atheist. I have worked these steps with atheists. I can't really call myself an atheist anymore. There's a very real power in my life today that I I can't define. So what I think my job is when I'm working with somebody is to find that kernel of faith that we can have in common. You know, my I'm, I go to a Wednesday night Vision for You Big Book study, and we are reading We Agnostics right now. The group's been going on since last December, and we've just now gotten to We Agnostics. And I've been dreading this chapter because there are some of Bill's concepts in this chapter that I want to argue with. But one of the things I've found over the past few weeks since we've been reading this chapter is that taking it one paragraph at a time in the Vision for You format, I can avoid argument or hostility and look for where does this fit with my faith. And I think, you know, I I mentioned having taken atheists through the steps. What I have found as an effective tool when I'm dealing with complete non-believers is to talk about practice. You know, I just have to practice the principles that are in the step and practice the process that's in the steps. And so I I stick to the mechanism of going through the steps that I've been taught that's been effective for me and hope and pray that the person that I'm taking through the steps will have what I had as an experience when going through the steps convinced I was an atheist, which is a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. You know, I it's not always successful. But again, remember the reason why we do this. The reason why I take other people through the steps, the reason why I you know, I'm working with the other people is not to convert them to what I believe. It's to keep myself out of the food. Does that answer your question? Uh, yeah, it, yeah. Thank you. That 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 is very helpful because I've had to work with other people in other faiths, and I, I have found it difficult to me. But when I when I just hearing what you said helps clear that up. It's like I don't have to direct them. I have to kind of find that place where we can meet and where it, where it works with my faith. Um, and, and then, you know, the whole point of, of them still having a spiritual awakening. I've had one that, you know, kind of brought me back to my faith instead of changing it. But, um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Rob. Thank you to everyone who asked questions this morning. And, of course, thank you very, very much, John, for your beautiful 
an inspirational presentation this morning. I'm going to close from page 164 in the chapter entitled, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.